Remain standing for the gospel lesson, also our sermon text from John chapter 13, the last eight verses. Listen carefully because this is the gospel of God. So when he had gone out, that is Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. And we ask that during this time, as we meditate on it, that we would be empowered by your word, by the Spirit who inspired your word, and by the power of the cross of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are entering into, we have entered into the heart, you could say, of John's gospel. The the climax of John's gospel, like all the other gospels, is the end, the passion of Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection. But chapters 13 to 17, which are unique to John's gospel, really are the heart and soul in many ways of what John is all about from the first chapter to the last. The world's about to stop for the 11 faithful disciples that are still in the upper room. Everything they've come to know and believe and hope for during these last three years following Jesus is about to be tested. And maybe in their minds, they're going to think at some points, destroyed. Of course, we know how the story ends. We live on this side of the resurrection, we know that their faith, their hope, their understanding is about to be transformed into something new and greater. 
their, their understanding of Jesus and the gospel is about to undergo a death and resurrection. But on the way to this renovation of their hearts and minds, the 11 disciples will be severely tested. And that's how it always works. That's how God does it. It's how it works for you and me as well. God is in the business of taking his children from one degree of glory to another and then to another. He's committed to transforming you into a more faithful, more committed follower of Jesus. And and he's more committed to this than you are. Which is another way of saying he loves you even more than you love yourself. But the way he accomplishes this is oftentimes painful. He does it by testing you, by disappointing you, by upsetting you, by putting to death in you your old ways of thinking and believing and behaving so that he can raise you up to new heights of thinking and believing and behaving. This is part of what it means for you to take up your cross as you walk with Jesus. Following Christ means a lifetime of deaths and resurrections. God takes us to lands of great joy via roads of tears and sorrows and setbacks. This is just how Christian maturity happens. It's how the Spirit conforms his disciples, us, into the image of Jesus Christ. Difficulties and disappointments and tests are the means that God uses to make you more like him. And sometimes this transformation process includes coming face to face with your sinfulness. Sometimes we, like Peter, need to see for ourselves the depths of our sin just what we are capable of before we can move on to greater glory in our walk with the Lord. Now the thing that makes this transformation process possible is not the cross that you bear, but the cross that Jesus bore for you. The power that takes you from one degree of glory to another is not your cross, but Christ's. You see, the the 11 disciples got through this severe test because Christ and his cross brought them through it. The cross is what transforms our knowledge and our faith and our hope, our understanding of Jesus and the gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus is what brought Peter to repentance after his denials. The cross changes everything. It empowers the way we think, the way we live, how we respond to tests, how we battle sin. Jesus died and rose from the dead, not just to save people, but also to grow up a people in grace and godliness. And the disciples are right on the cusp of a major dramatic transformation in their lives. Peter in a particular way, but all of them. 
Jesus is still with the eleven in the upper room. Judas has left to do his wicked deed in darkness. The events have been set in motion that will soon culminate in the crucifixion of Jesus. So he says in verse 31, you could have your Bibles open to John 13. And he says there in verse 31, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. The cross brought glory both to God the Father and to God the Son. The word glory and glorify shows up 23 times in John's gospel. It's a major theme in the fourth gospel. And five of those occurrences are found right here in verses 31 and 32 that I just read. In his commentary on John, D.A. Carson reminds us that God's glory in the Old Testament is, quote, the revelation of God's splendid activity, end quote. Another commentator puts it this way, quote, God's glory is the visible expression of his excellence. And when that excellence is seen then people are prompted to give him glory, the honor and worship he is due. God's glory is God's splendor on display. In Isaiah 49, God says to the servant of the Lord, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Now, if we keep reading in Isaiah, we find that the true servant of the Lord is not just Israel, but the true Israel, Israel's Messiah. Christ transcends Israel's role. Jesus is the greater Israel in whom God will display, from our perspective, has displayed his splendor, his glory. And how did God display his splendor in Jesus? How did God glorify himself in the Christ? By sending him to the cross. God's splendor is displayed in the perfect obedience of the Son's sacrifice. Now, when the Israelites needed to be reminded of God's glory, he appeared to them in various ways, in bright lights, in a cloud. But how does God appear in the New Testament? How is His splendor and excellence displayed visibly? In Jesus, in His Son, specifically through the cross. Christ and His cross Perfectly, better than any of the other displays in the Old Covenant, Christ and His cross perfectly reveal God's glory, His wisdom and faithfulness and holiness and love and righteous character, which are the aspects of His glory. We can put it this way, again, quoting D.A. Carson, the supreme moment of divine disclosure... The greatest moment of displayed glory 
was in the shame of the cross. End quote. If you want to understand our God, the God, there's no better place for you to look than the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus is the highest moment of God's revelation of himself to mankind. We can learn more about God's glory and character in the cross than we can anywhere else in the Bible. One theologian puts it this way, if we want to understand God, we must stand, excuse me, we must study the cross. If we want to be transformed into the image of Jesus, we must study the cross. A crossless Christianity is a godless Christianity. Only through Jesus Christ, his suffering sacrifice, can God be known. End quote. And so this raises a couple of questions. First, how specifically did the cross glorify the Father? The cross showed the Father to be a faithful God, faithful in keeping his promise to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. More fundamentally, though, the cross showed the Father to be wise in providing a way, as I said during right after the confession of sins, wise in provide, providing a way for God to be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. There's a tension. There's a tension here that Paul acknowledges in Romans 3. Romans 3 says that the only way God could be both just, righteous, and the justifier of the ungodly was by having his son die on a cross as a substitute for our sins. It's the only way he could maintain his justice, his holiness, and yet also forgive sinners. The cross glorified the Father by revealing his holiness, which demands due payment for sin, but also by revealing his love, which compelled him to sin the perfect substitute, even his own son, to pay for our sins. The glory of the cross, you see, lies in what God had to give up to purchase a people, to redeem a people from sin. We might also ask, secondly, how specifically did the cross glorify the Son? The cross showed the Son to be compassionate in allowing himself to be damned as a cursed sinner in your stead and purchasing your salvation with his own blood. It showed him to be powerful in bearing the weight of the sin, sins of the world. It showed him to be victorious in vanquishing the ancient foe, the devil. On the cross, Jesus robbed Satan of his prey. 
which would have been you and me. Do you see glory in all of this? Do you see the glory that lies behind the cross, that that lies hidden under the crucifixion for those with eyes of faith to see? Do you see the glory of the cross of Christ? If not, if you don't see the glory of the cross of Christ, then you won't be able to see the glory in the cross that Jesus has given you to bear as you follow him. You'll only see shame and pain. The biggest potential tragedy in your life, the biggest potential tragedy in your life is that you cease to glory in the cross. Paul writes emphatically in Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast in anything other than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Never get over the cross. Never cease to glory in it. You will boast in something. You will glory in something. Make sure it's always and only the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross is where Christ fulfilled God's law and satisfied its demands on your behalf. The cross is where Christ bore your sins and bought your redemption. The cross is where the Father punished the Son for you. The cross is deep glory. That's why Paul says in another place, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Everything in your life, fellow Christian, must revolve around Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The cross is the gospel. The cross is your guide. The cross is your power. The cross is God's glory and yours. When the cross is central to your soul, your character character will become like God's. You'll find glory where God finds it. You'll find satisfaction in being a living sacrifice. You'll find joy in taking up your cross. And God's Spirit will work in you true worship. It'll flow out of your heart and your mouth as you present your body to God as living sacrifices for His service. And these rivers of living water will flow out of you and into the world which desperately needs less of its own vain glory and more of the glory of God. More of God's cruciform glory, cross-shaped glory. In verse 33, Jesus addresses his disciples with a term that he uses nowhere else in the New Testament. 
Little children. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You'll seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. The term little children overflows with care, tenderness. It's fitting for Jesus to address his disciples this way because of what's about to happen, what he's about to tell them. It's difficult. He's going somewhere and they can't come. They can't keep following him in the way that they have. First, he's going to the cross to atone for mankind's sin and they certainly can't come with him there and participate in that. He must do this work alone. But then he's going to heaven. And that's principally what he's referring to here. Back to the Father. And they won't be able to go there right away either. He'll prepare a place for them. So they'll get to come eventually, but not yet. The relationship between these 11 disciples and Jesus is about to change radically. They'll continue to obey his teachings, but they won't be able to follow him physically. The relationships with one another are also about to change. With Jesus gone, a new community will be formed. And this new community, the church, will be defined by a certain principle. And what is that principle? Love one for another. Look with me at verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When Jesus was on the earth, it was easy for his disciples to be identified as followers of Jesus because they followed Jesus physically. Everyone knew who they were by looking, observing They went from place to place with him. They obeyed his teachings. But now that Jesus is gone, how does the world identify his followers? By their imitation of Christ's love. Not just our love, but by our imitation of Christ's love. The church is called to be a community of disciples identifiable by our mutual Christ-like love for one another. Jesus didn't leave us alone. He left us together. And because you have a relationship with Christ, you have a relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus tells us how that relation, those relationships should look. Jesus addressed his disciples here as little children, which is an intimate family term. Jesus left behind a family, 
a group of children, a community of spiritual siblings, a band of brothers who serve one another in humility and deference and sacrificial love. That's, that is what the body of Christ is. Jesus calls it a new commandment, but it's also an old one, as John reminds us elsewhere in his epistle. In Leviticus 19.18, God commanded Israel, love your neighbor as yourself. So we, we need to ask another question of the text. What, what sense, in what sense is this a new command? Well, it's new because the source of this love is Christ and his love for us. The, the command is no longer just to love. The command is to love as Christ has loved you. How has Christ loved you? Just as the cross defines true glory, we can also say that the cross defines true love. Christ's love for you on the cross is both an example and the enabling force of your love for the brethren, for the ones that you are sitting next to, for those who are in our body that is covenanted together. And so Jesus is calling you. He is calling each of you. He is calling Christ the King church to a Christ-like love for one another. And this kind of selfless, sacrificial love is only possible because Jesus loved all of us all the way to the cross. If Jesus had not paid for your sins and given you a new nature, a new life, you would be unable to love others with Christ-like love. So he doesn't just set the example, he also gives us the power in the cross. You can love others because Jesus first loved you. We love God because he first loved us, but we also love others because he first loved us. So this command is new because it's driven by the love of Jesus, which enables and exemplifies Sacrificial love. True, heart-level disciples of Jesus Christ can't, can't be identified by cross necklaces or Christian t-shirts or I love Jesus bumper stickers. None of these things is wrong in itself. But they do make for bad identifiers. It's easy to do any of those things things. Jesus says that his people will be distinct and identifiable because they do something much more difficult than those things because of their Christ-like love. So what's this look like on the ground? How can we apply this? How do we put Christ-like love into action, into practice? Well, Paul tells us what Christ-like love looks like in the first four verses 
of Philippians 2. You don't have to turn there. Just listen as I read Philippians 2, 1 to 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then he goes on to say, to have the same mind that, that Jesus Christ had. So are you overly ambitious and conceited? Or in humility, do you consider others more significant than yourself? Are you you primarily self-interested in the way you organize your life, your time, your resources? Or do you look first to the interests of others? Just think for a moment about how hard it is truly to value others above yourself. To value what they value. Or to put them truly before your own interests. That's a tough standard. But it is the standard. You see, the standard is not even just loving others as you love yourself. That's, that's a good, good place to start. But here Jesus takes it even beyond that. It's loving others as Jesus loved you. So do you give others the benefit of the doubt? The same benefit of the doubt that you tend to give yourself. By nature we tend to be suspicious of others. We distrust others' motives. We attribute wicked motives oftentimes. We assume the worst. And yet 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. One of the best ways that you can love others is by assuming the best about them. Do you resent others who stand in your way or who cause you discomfort? Do you become irritable when people make your life difficult? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. This week, pick someone. Someone in your life that's reasonably close to you. And figure out what it means to love that person the way Christ loves you. You may be doing some of the things that you need to be doing, but you're probably not doing everything. You can pick someone in your family or someone at church. It can be a parent or a child or a friend or a colleague or an elder or a husband or a wife. It can be someone in this church or in another church. Whoever it is, identify the ways in which your love for them falls short of Christ's love for you. 
Measure your love for this person against 1 Corinthians 13 and Philippians 2, 1 to 4. Confess where you've fallen short. Then repent. And then endeavor to love this person with Christ-like love in ways that you haven't before. And then when you're done with, with that project, pick somebody else and do it again. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Make sure that this Christian virtue, this Christian grace becomes more than just an idea in your head. Put it into your heart and then put it into practice. Of all the commandments of Christ, none is talked about so much as this one. And none is obeyed so little as this one. The one that Jesus labels a new commandment. I quoted Bishop Ryle last week. I got to do it again this week once. Quote, if we mean anything when we profess to have charity and love toward all men, it ought to be seen in our tempers and our words, our bearing and our doing, our behavior at home and abroad, our, con- our, our conduct in every relation of life. Especially it ought to show itself forth in all our dealing with other Christians. We should regard them as brethren and sisters and delight to do anything to promote their happiness. Christ's cause in the earth would prosper far more than it does if this simple law was more honored. There is nothing that the world understands and values more than true charity. The very men who cannot comprehend doctrine and know nothing of theology can appreciate charity. It arrests their attention and makes them think. For the world's sake, if for no other cause, let us follow after charity more and more. End quote. Well, as we might expect, Peter brushes aside the new commandment. He can't get past the Lord's announcement up in verse 33 that he's leaving and they can't come. This is unacceptable to Peter. So in verse 33, Peter asks, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then in verse 38, Jesus challenges Peter. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now we know how the rest of the story goes. The Lord Jesus ended up being right. Simon Peter was certain 
He was absolutely certain that he had what it took to stick with Jesus to the end. To the bitter end, I'll go with you, Lord. And yet, he was only a few hours away from spiritual disaster. A few hours, not even days or weeks. Peter's failure reminds us that our hearts are much, much weaker than we imagine. We're we're never standing as firm as we think we are. We can't conceive of how far we could fall into sin if God allowed it. Like Peter, we, we, we fancy ourselves faithful and true to the end no matter what, and we're quite certain that there are, there are certain sins that are just beyond us. Maybe they didn't used to be, but now they are. Or maybe they never have been and they never will be. We pity others who fall into sin and we gratify ourselves with the thought that we did not and would not do such a thing. But quite often we fool ourselves with these vain self-assurances because they are founded more on our innate strength than on the strength of the Lord. It's been said rightly that the seeds of every sin are latent in the heart of every believer. And these latent seeds of sin have the potential to sprout up and produce an abundant crop in you and in me. They only need the right occasion and the withdrawal of God's grace for a short time. That's all it would take. Like Peter, we may envision ourselves doing wonders for the Lord. And like Peter, we may learn through bitter sorrow that we have no innate spiritual power at all. Even the new life, the new nature that God has given to us in Christ must be sustained and preserved to the end by God's Spirit. Remember Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Peter would have been good to know this. Or as the NIV puts it, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The secret to spiritual safety is a humble sense of your own innate weakness. Remember, Paul says in another place, 2 Corinthians 12, when you are weak, then you are strong. When you know your weakness, that's when you are the strongest. The strongest and safest Christian is the one who feels his weakness most acutely. He's the one who prays most often this kind of prayer from Psalm 119, verse 133. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion 
over me. Let's pray and ask for God to help us do this. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son into the world as a man and for sending him to the cross. And we thank you, Jesus, for being willing willing to be glorified through the cross and for not seeking glory in a worldly way. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for uniting us to the crucified and risen Son of God. Keep steady our steps according to your promise. Keep us walking in step with you, Holy Spirit, so that no iniquity gets dominion over us. Help us even this week to resist the devil, resist temptation, and also help us to love others, especially the brethren, especially those in the household of God, the way you have loved us, Jesus. Amen.